An hour of chaos in Auckland. Roads turned rivers. Our house is the main water fair for the whole of the Birkdale region. Pretty freaky. Stormwater streams down city streets. They just kept coming down. All the gutterings couldn't handle it. It was just crap everywhere. The worst we've ever seen. This is your moat now. This literally is our moat. Swimming pool. Call it what you want today. It's everything. This street at the bottom of a hill became a bubbling river as fast as anyone can remember. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and that's my street and like tens of thousands of other homes in Auckland our own little 1930s bungalow didn't escape the torrent. We were oblivious to it until about an hour ago and a neighbour knocked on our window and yes everything is flooded right round the back right round here. This, this is the worst it's been here. We've been here about 20 years but we were lucky. We were lucky. Some neighbours had to clear out when water bubbled up through the floorboards. But the much bigger shock was to come as the ferocious storm hit the east coast, causing damage way beyond what Auckland felt. This sort of thing, the road simply being closed and the communities north of here simply being cut off, is going to happen more and more often. It's what we saw on the west coast, it's what we're going to see increasingly throughout our country. So this isn't just one rain event. This is what our future is going to increasingly look like. But if this is our future, I don't want to just stand there next time panicky and powerless as floodwaters lap at the doorstep, or worse. So today on The Detail, I want to find out what we can do to protect our homes and our neighbourhoods. I'm talking to flood expert John Ricks. He's the head of the water engineering team at Tonkin & Taylor, and he works with private clients as well as public agencies like councils. I live in a coastal suburb, in, well, I'm in St Heliers, and um, I was looking at the road down from my house down to the streets and it was flooded the other day and that was the first time I'd seen it. I've done a bit of flood modelling around the area so whenever there's an event like this that goes down I go out to see whether the models that we've been producing whether they've been giving similar results to what's actually being experienced. And I went out to Mission Bay and saw um, the effects of the flooding down there too. It was destined to be dire, Mother Nature serving a cocktail of thunderstorms and high tide. Can I ask you how accurate is your modelling so far? I was relieved to see that all of the areas where I saw flooding were also predicted to flood. I haven't done a study to check um, how accurate that was across all of the Auckland region, but I know that um, the flood mapping that's been done across the Auckland region indicates that this was 60,000 properties which could be impacted by flooding. Um, I get a sense that uh, the areas that are experiencing the flooding are similar to what's predicted on those floodplains. And um, if they're not on the floodplains, there's also what's called overland flow paths, um, which is where the rainfall might be trying to get to the local stream. And there's, there's another 60-odd thousand properties which sit along overland flow paths. So we're fortunate in the Auckland region to live in an area which has got a, a good awareness um, of the flood mapping and people can find that res those results uh, easily. We're also fortunate, I think, around the rest, the rest of the country, a lot of the other councils have done similar work too. A bit further on, I'm going to ask you a bit more about practically what can I do to protect my house in future. But... With that event, what is actually going on? Can you explain to me? I know that we had extremely heavy rain, but what is happening underground 
So underground, we've got a, a stormwater drainage system, which is typically designed for frequent rainfall events. It's what we'd call our sort of primary drainage system. Um, it, it can be a combination of pipes. It could be some small channels as well. But what happens in extreme events like we experienced last week, we're exceeding what the design of that infrastructure is. And so we're relying on secondary drainage paths, secondary drainage systems. And this is where the overland flow paths and the roads um, uh, are required to get water from up the hill to the coast. Right. So with that huge volume of water that was flowing down the roads and flowing from properties that are higher than ours, that's, is, is that what is supposed to happen? Uh, yep, yeah, that is what's supposed to happen. Um, and largely due to affordability reasons, but I think also increasingly due to carbon reasons, it, it, it's impractical it's expensive and it's not sustainable to keep putting larger and larger infrastructure underground to deal with events of the scale that we experienced last week. In my view, we need to be able to rely more heavily on our secondary systems, our secondary flow paths, because the, all the indications are that flooding is going to be occurring more frequently into the future. So what are you saying here, John? Are you saying that, yes, we could put in bigger pipes underground, but they're not going to necessarily prevent the flooding that we've experienced that's right and i question whether that's what we would want to be doing anyway if you put larger pipes in underground there's a huge cost associated with them and is that really where we want to be spending the money are you saying that we've got we've got enough infrastructure underground we need to focus on what's on the surface there are situations where bigger pipes will help, but uh, in the majority of cases, I'd say within across the Auckland region, bigger pipes won't necessarily lead to much smaller flood extents that are significant and change the flood risk for the sort of events that we experienced last week. And the infrastructure for dealing with flooding extends beyond pipe networks. In Auckland, we don't have a lot of uh, stop banks or levees, but around the country, uh, stop banks also provide an important piece of infrastructure which helps uh, drainage during flood events but as with any infrastructure absolute protection isn't guaranteed and so there's go they're going to be exceeded for something that occurs beyond the design the design standard for uh, that piece of infrastructure so if you design a stop bank for a 100 year ARI level of service ARI being average recurrence interval one percent mm. likelihood each year there's larger storm events than that which can occur and we also see that infrastructure sometimes fails as well and so you can ha have people living in an area where they expect protection from infrastructure and it doesn't always um, provide that level of protection. And we saw how that has failed people in the Tairawhiti region. Not only has State Highway 35 suffered from the worst of the damage, but the Gisborne region was completely cut off with the closure of State Highway 2 north and south. Uh, we had trucks that needed to hit a ferry in Wellington that were going via Apodaki and Taupo and Timbuktu and whatever to get down there. He says there's been huge investment in regions like Gisborne through the Provincial Growth Fund, but they need better infrastructure to back it up. To have all three roads in and out of the city closed when we've had two, three hundred mils and, you know, it's, it seems ludicrous. But John Rick says there are things we can do as homeowners to mitigate the damage. We can start by finding out if our home is in a flood zone through the council's GeoMaps information service. So councils have a responsibility to identify hazards and so 
councils increasingly have got that information uh, available on their council GIS mapping systems. And you can delve in at a property level and see whether your property is going to be impacted by flooding. So we've owned this house for about 30 years. It was built on what used to be a swamp, cabbage tree swamp that is. And like our neighbours, we know that it's in a floodplain. But I'm going on the council website now and to the Geo Maps page. And there's a huge amount of information here and it's pretty tricky to navigate. So I have to admit that I've already got a bit of help from the council's geospatial team. So right now I'm typing in my address, clicking on the themes button along the top, then environment, and it brings up catchments and hydrology. From there, with a few more clicks, I can see an aerial map of my house or an aerial picture of my house and the surrounding houses. And then I can see where it fits in the floodplain. And most interesting to me is that there's a blue dotted line that runs through the back of our house or our backyard and next door through the neighbours. And that is the overland flow path. And that explains this. Look, it's just pouring down the hill. Oh my God. This is really very I don't know what we do. This is, I think we should call 111. Well, we didn't call 111, but others in the neighbourhood had to. But the suddenness of this event left a lot of us wondering what just happened. Your experience um, and not having seen flooding as much as uh, you had until this week is similar to my experience as well. And there's no doubt about it that the rainfall was at the extreme end of what anybody's experience would have been. Certainly in the 16 years that I've lived in Auckland, I haven't seen anything um, as severe as that personally within the region. And so when you look at these maps that are on the council uh, GIS maps, they they are typically showing you a 100-year floodplain that has a a 1% likelihood um, each year. But that's not to say that you're not going to be experiencing flooding more frequently than that, although maybe not to the extent which is shown, because if with, within that floodplain that you can see on the maps, you might also experience flooding at a, a 10% likelihood or a, or a 20% likelihood as well. So for someone like me who is standing on the front doorstep and watching the water get closer and closer to the house and feeling absolutely powerless... What could I have done? So there's a few things. Most of them all require some preparedness for it. Um, And so if you've experienced flooding before, the chances are if nothing changes in the future, you're going to experience flooding again. So you're either looking at options to limit your water entry, and that could be done through barriers or automatic flood doors, Depending on, it all depends on how the flooding on the property occurred as well, which is very site-specific. Uh, sometimes it can be due to uh, blocked drains, but it could equally be due to just being within the floodplain of a river. Uh, it can also be due to uh, backwater coming up the sewage or the stormwater drainage systems as well, mm. in which case non-return return valves can be added to your pipes. Um, and if, if, if you search in property flood resilience or property level, protection these are sort of two terms which are used internationally um then you come up with a whole heap of ideas which could be implemented the the other other than limiting water entry the other things that can be done is to just ways to minimize damage Um, and this is about making your property more flood resilient and there's things like waterproof plaster there's uh, changing your floor materials raising electric sockets 
uh, and the like. And then there's some more structural measures such as raising building levels and relocating buildings as well. But they're at the more extreme end. But I think the point, Sharon, is that when you see that flood water rising, your opportunities have become a bit limited. So it's how you prepare for it beforehand. Yeah, yeah. And all of those things that you've suggested sound quite um, complicated to someone like me who's really impractical. I mean, um, what about the simplest things like just clearing out the drains of, of leaves and, you know, all the other garden rubbish, I suppose. That can work depending on the area that you're in because as we've talked about, we have a primary drainage system and so the, the, the cleaning of a primary drainage system and the importance during a flood event or an extreme flood event um, varies from place to place and in some areas uh, there might be a lot of dependency on that primary drainage system but there is no way you'd want to have people going anywhere near that primary drainage system during a flood event because it would just be a, a, a huge risk potentially to life to go anywhere near those those cul- potentially culverts or areas like that that might block but if you're at the at the more let's all call it nuisance flooding end of things where we're talking about small pipes then keeping those uh, pipes culverts clean it it helps for frequent flooding. I'd be surprised to see if it make much difference um, at the more extreme end. What it does do with the extreme end, it probably reduces the duration of the flooding, despite not impacting on the peak water levels that you're experiencing. Others resorted to sandbags and buckets, doing what they could to sweep the water away. We've got towels here. We've had a roof collapse up there. It was just on that side over there where we got um, the water was actually lapping up on the side of the building. What about sandbagging? Uh, sand, again, subject to what's causing the flooding on a property. Sandbagging could help. It's often used around coastal inundation areas, but it's in many ways it's a, it's a sort of temporary flood barrier. But what you can in some cases get is you can get flooding on the wrong side of the sandbag and then you can actually be keeping water in for longer as well. So it's a site-specific uh, assessment is really needed to determine what the most appropriate flood mitigation measure is. But basically, are you saying, John, that in a property like ours that is low-lying in a flood-prone area of Auckland, we probably need to get professional advice on the best way to protect against future floods like this? I'm saying that whilst also caveating that by saying last week's rainfall was at the extreme end of what we would ex- we would expect and so we, we shouldn't expect to see that happening very frequently. And so there's a cost-benefit to be weighed up as to whether we think that's um, appropriate. If it, if it has happened, it is likely to happen again at some point in the future, but it, it could well be a long time. Westport is most recently a place that, you know, we've constantly been hearing about, actually. The Buller River beyond its banks in streets, gardens and homes on the outskirts of Westport after rising to levels never seen before. The uh, original planning for this uh, flood event when it was, uh, you know, when it arose was a 1 in 50 year event. It's very clear now this is more like a, a 1 in 100 year event. And, and talk about having to move the whole town because it just can't cope. What is happening there and, and what needs to happen for people to protect their homes? Westport and the other areas around the country there's an incredibly complex decision-making process that needs to be worked through. We're dealing with matters around, yes, flood risk, but we're also dealing with matters around land ownership and zoning 
the economics of it all. Um, and there's going to be lots of different perspectives on what the appropriate pathway forward is. We also need to make sure that we don't make short-term decisions, which we're then going to later regret, which is just compounding the problem year in year, where uh, we regret the decisions we're making now into the future. What, what are the options, though, for Westport? Um, I'd refer back to the PARA acronym that I used earlier. Um, we protect or defend we avoid for new development, we can retreat, or you can accommodate the flooding. And under each of those uh, categories of flood mitigation, there's a whole heap of things which could be done. There's no one solution that's going to answer. It'll be a combination of all of them. But we also need to accept that uh, absolute protection isn't going to be achievable. And we also need to ensure that the communities in these areas um, are part of the decision-making process. Let's look at Edgecombe. Are you aware of what happened in Edgecombe many years ago when the when the stock banks failed and and you know hundreds of houses were were flooded? And Edgecombe has had serious flooding before, but when the water came, it did so so very fast that even a town that had been warned and knew what it could be like was caught out by the speed of the water and by how very much of it there was. Somewhere approaching 2,000 people had been evacuated from along the Rangitaiki River, from Edgecombe, from Teteko, and from rural communities along that river and the Whakatania River too. And we've spoken to people whose homes are underwater, some for a second time. So the Edgecombe floods uh, from April 2017, Mm. there was a breach of a flood wall. Again, the... The findings of the investigation had had shown that it was a complex series of events which led to that failure of the flood wall, uh, including the foundations and the geology and previous earthquakes in the area. And there was spillway work and floodway work which hadn't been completed. But one of the alarming things for me was probably that there there was uh, a low awareness from the community that they sat within the floodplain. Um, And as tech technology has improved and the availability of information has improved. I think we're already way ahead of even where we were a year or two ago in availability of flood hazard information. So people should be aware of where the floodplains actually exist. And so when there's extreme rainfall that's going on, then that should be setting the alarm bells and people should be uh, planning for what, what, what if these flood waters keep increasing? What should we do? How can we protect ourselves first? Um, and then property second. But, and so are you saying that we as as residents, as homeowners, we now have to take much more responsibility because, you know, because we're getting more extreme events? Uh, yep, I think there's a, absolutely there's a personal responsibility there that if people, the, the, inf- the information exists to show where the flood hazards are located, um, particularly for people that are, buying uh, properties in and around those flood areas, and I do differentiate between new people buying in those areas and people that have been there for a long time, then um, buyer beware, basically, um, and have some have some plans in place where when it floods that you, you're, you're clear on how you're going to be able to look after your, your yourself and your family. Um, but I, I, I don't want to be too alarmist either with this because there's lots of different types of flooding and there's this sort of low energy, slow level, water level rising, which really isn't much risk to people. Mm. Um, but there's also, there could well be very fast moving deep water where lives could also be at risk. And understanding the difference between the two at a property scale, then look, absolutely that's really important. And I think that's where the councils and the individuals need need 
can connect more and so that individuals know what they should be doing in the event of a flood. And there's something else people caught in floods can do. It's an idea John Ricks came up with a few years ago when he was out taking pictures of the floods in Clevedon, southeast of Auckland. And as I was taking photographs, I thought this is crazy. Everyone else is out with their fo- with their cameras as well, taking photographs of the same event. And what we really need to do is start compiling all this information into one place. And so NZ Flood Picks was, was born. But what's become clearer since then is that by having a national repository for flood photographs, we're also helping raise awareness of, of flooding. Mm. Um, and that helps with our communication of the flooding issues, which is a, and the storytelling that goes alongside flooding. By capturing people's photographs, it gives you an opportunity to connect with them and to hear about what people's experiences have actually been. And so the information that you're g- gathering from this latest event... How how will that be used? A lot of we, we talked earlier about frequency of events, um, and that's based on statistics of rainfall and flood levels. And often we're dealing with quite short records, um, and so large events like we just had have the ability to change the statistics quite significantly. And so these sort of large events like Auckland has experienced, then that will be feeding into the rainfall analysis and potential revisions of design rainfall that we use for our floodplains and our flood models. Mm. We can also use the information to help validate our models to test if we put that actual rainfall through a model, does the model predict the right uh, flood extents for what was actually experienced? Um, and we're also seeing through initiatives like the NZ Flood Picks one that we talked about, the ability to capture this information, which helps us prepare better for the next flood event and be better prepared and to have um, responses um, to the next event as well. Yeah, so we should all be sending off our photos to... That's www.nzfloodpicks.co.nz. OK, I'm going to upload mine as soon as we finish this call. Thank you. That'd be great. We rely heavily on flood models, um, and whilst we can have a pretty good amount of faith in them, uh, it's very difficult to argue with flood photographs. Now, if, like me, you're feeling completely useless, councils and the government have some practical guides about what you can do if your place is flood-prone. And we'll put those links on the webpage for today's podcast. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4 RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to John Ricks. Mā te wā.